there are scores, perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands of people in prison today uh, who are there uh, wrongfully because of bad evidence. And I think the focus on death cases, on capital cases, uh, somehow unique, is misguided. I think the problem is far broader. I would disagree with Judge Kaczynski that there is less of a problem uh, with innocence in capital cases. But I do agree with the judge that it's a significant problem across the board. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is away on business today. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at www.goclio.com. That's C-L-I-O. Back in August of 2014, Lawyer to Lawyer hosted a show on the death penalty where we explored whether the death penalty was considered cruel and unusual punishment with some standout guests. Judge Alex Kaczynski from the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and exonerated death row survivor Ronald Klein from Witness to Innocence and MASH actor Mike Farrell from Death Penalty Focus. Presently, the death penalty is the law in 31 states and the debate about its constitutionality continues to this day. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll revisit the death penalty. We're going to take a look at the death penalty debate within our society, politics, and in our courts as well as explore the fate of the death penalty itself and whether we will see the death penalty before the Supreme Court. Our first guest today is attorney Robert Dunham, who is the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, a national nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C., that provides information and analysis on issues relating to capital punishment. Before joining DPIC in March 2015, Mr. Dunham was one of the leading capital appeal lawyers in Pennsylvania, arguing death penalty cases in all of the state and federal courts of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the United States Supreme Court. He's taught death penalty law at Villanova Law School for 11 years and has lectured extensively in death penalty training programs across the country for more than two decades. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Robert. Thank you for having me. Next, I'd like to welcome our returning guest, Judge Alex Kaczynski. Judge Kaczynski sits on the bench of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, where he served as his appointment on November 7th, 1985, by President Ronald Reagan. Prior to that appointment, Judge Kaczynski occupied other prestigious positions, including Chief Judge of the U.S. Claims Court and Office of Counsel to the President. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Judge Kaczynski. Good to be here. Well, capital punishment in the United States is slowed down. The number of executions and new death sentences is likely to hit lows not seen for some 20 years. Robert, what's your sense of the acceptability of the death penalty in the United States and people on death row and the number of people being convicted? Is it on the decline? I think it's unquestionably on the decline. Uh, if you take a look at the, uh, the, the national figures, uh, in the late 1990s, uh, 315 people were sent to death row uh, and 
this year we're looking at a number that's going to be somewhere around 50. Uh, when you look at executions, uh, the high uh, was 98 uh, in 1999. Uh, this year they're going to be 27 or 28. Um, so we're having uh, there's a very significant reduction uh, in both the executions and the number of people who are being sent to death row. I think that's also accompanied by uh, a drop in public support for the death penalty. The public opinion polls, if you take a look at the Gallup polls and the Pew polls, uh, showed support for the death penalty at about 80% uh, in the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. The Gallup poll this year placed support for the death penalty at 61%. The Pew poll placed it at 56%. Uh, and when you ask the follow-up question, not just do you support the death penalty in the abstract, uh, but the follow-up question, what do you think the appropriate punishment for murder is? And you offer options uh, of the death penalty or life without possibility of parole, a majority of Americans now say that they would prefer the life sentence to the death option. Well, Judge Kaczynski, in the past, and I think even on our last show, you mentioned the option of a firing squad for those who uh, object to the cruel and unusual punishment aspect of the application of drugs. What are your thoughts today? Well, the, the um, decline in, um, in the number of executions has been, uh, uh, to a large extent, a function of the fact that um, many states, uh, or most states, still use uh, lethal injection uh, to perform executions, and those drugs have become much more difficult to uh, to obtain. Uh, this is a result of a concerted effort on the part of anti-death penalty forces to deny states the drugs for executions. So it's been harder and more difficult to get. There's been a lot of litigation surrounding uh, alternative use of drugs, and uh, that has slowed the process down significantly. You know, the problem could just be solved altogether if states uh, weren't sort of foolishly clinging to the idea of using drugs for executions. You know, use use some other method like the uh, firing squad, and uh, those problems would be eliminated. And uh, my guess is that um, both the cost and delay and uh, frequency of the death penalty would, would go back up. Now, whether it would go back up to prior levels, I don't know, but it would definitely go back up from current levels. Robert? Well, I think that there is some truth to uh, uh, to the level of executions being down because of difficulties in obtaining lethal injection drugs uh, and difficulties in the manner uh, in which states have been carrying out executions. But that's, uh, that's not to me the key number because uh, the unavailability of lethal injection drugs uh, as a result of the boycott of the death penalty by the pharmaceutical companies uh, and the European sanctions uh, where Europe does not allow the drugs to be exported uh, to the United States for use in executions, that doesn't account for juries uh, not imposing uh, death sentences. And we were already at a 40-year low in the death sentences imposed last year. Uh, we stand to be uh, 25 to 30 percent below that number this year. And that's got nothing to do with the availability of drugs. Uh, it's clear that there is a decline in the United States uh, in popular support for the death penalty. Uh, and that's a product of uh, the growing public awareness about the problems with innocence. There have now been 156 people who've been exonerated from death row uh, after 
having been sent there. Uh, ongoing uh, uh, problems uh, with junk science, bad evidence, uh, disturbing amounts of prosecutorial misconduct uh, that have contributed to wrongful convictions, uh, and ongoing evidence uh, of very deficient representation, uh, states' uh, unwillingness to, uh, to provide meaningful representation, uh, and that's been resulting in a lot of death penalty cases being reversed. In fact, at this stage, after having more than 8,500 death sentences imposed in the United States, the most likely outcome once someone is sentenced to death uh, is not that they'll be executed, but that their conviction or death sentence is going to be reversed. Uh, and so I think that we've seen across the political spectrum more and more people saying this is a policy that doesn't work, uh, this is a policy that risks innocent life, uh, and it's a policy that is getting less and less public support. Just earlier this month, a three-judge panel in in the Ninth Circuit overturned District Court Judge Carmack Carney's uh, ruling from last year uh, on technical grounds, mostly procedural, if I can remember, say that correctly, in Jones versus Davis, although it had the effect of uh, saving, essentially, the death sentences of hundreds of prisoners in the states. Robert, there is a, I would say, arguably a trend the other way, uh, not a trend perhaps, but at least a significant decision in the way of the progress that appears to be made, as you're pointing out. Well, the the Jones case was decided uh, on procedural grounds. Um, the habeas corpus statute um, limits the ability of federal courts to review constitutional errors. And uh, I know Judge Kaczynski has, in, uh, in other contexts, uh, talked about some of the problems uh, that the statute creates for federal judges. Uh, we, people in the public generally think that federal judges are able to review uh, constitutional issues in capital cases and other cases uh, and say yes or no, there's a constitutional violation or there's not. In fact, that's not the case. Uh, and one of the technical procedural rules of habeas corpus uh, was invoked in this case uh, to make it so that the Ninth Circuit could not even reach the question uh, of whether California's death penalty scheme was unconstitutional. Uh, the, uh, the panel held that the rule of law that the petitioner, uh, that Mr. Jones wanted to rely upon, uh, Furman versus Georgia, uh, would have constituted, well, the rule of law that Jones wanted applied uh, would have been a new rule of law, uh, that the old rule of law from uh, Furman versus Georgia, that the death penalty cannot be constitutional uh, if it is imposed in a manner that's arbitrary and capricious, uh, that did not clearly govern this case because Jones' allegations were not that he was unconstitutionally sentenced to death, but that after having been sentenced to death, uh, California's manner in, of care carrying it out uh, was arbitrary and capricious. Uh, so given that that was uh, considered a new rule of law by the panel, they did not even address the constitutional issue. Uh, we're going to see in additional cases, uh, and in fact, I, I think you'll see it in every California case from this point forward, uh, the same constitutional violation alleged uh, that Judge Carney found to be present in this case. Uh, the, what the Ninth Circuit ruled was that habeas corpus relief was not available uh, to Mr. Jones because uh, he was seeking to apply a new rule. Uh, they did not rule that the death penalty in California is constitutional. Uh, that's an issue that's still out there to be determined. Well, of course, that issue has been decided by the Supreme Court 20 years ago. Justice Stevens uh, was pushing that issue hard, uh, and um, uh, it went nowhere at all. That's the... Uh, position taken by the 
first taken by the Privy Council in reviewing uh, death penalties from Jamaica, that if you just let somebody sit on death row too long, uh, it's cruel and unusual punishment. Um, that argument went nowhere in the Supreme Court, and I, I have serious doubts it will go anywhere when it is, if and when it ever is presented on merits. Um, but um, you know, the, you know, it's probably there's probably some softening of um, support for the tenth penalty, but it's not uh, unrelated to this whole problem of uh, carrying out executions. Um, part of the calculus that um, that uh, juries are now making is the fact that they never see any uh, executions actually carried out. So uh, they go through this uh, trauma of trying to consider the case, and uh, then. Uh, they realize that uh, they are, they're really just wasting their time. Uh, uh, so I, I am not at all convinced that if the pace of executions picked up again, juries wouldn't go back to uh, being as uh, willing to impose death penalties before. You notice that um, in, even in the heart of, um, um, of what one would consider to be uh, the most anti-death penalty um, area in the in the country, and that is in Massachusetts, a state that itself has no death penalty, um, a jury managed to um, to uh, sentence uh, the marathon bomber to death. There's also been some significant developments in technology uh, that affects other areas of death penalty convictions, and I think probably the, the foremost among them is forensics and DNA. Robert, do you see that those types of developments in technology have had a significant impact on uh, overturning death penalties? DNA has certainly had an impact. Uh, in terms of death penalty cases, uh, the impact goes far beyond the availability of DNA itself uh, to exonerate individuals. Uh, we've had 156 people who've been exonerated from death row. Uh, fewer than 10% of them have been exonerated. Uh, around 10% have been exonerated with DNA. But DNA is unavailable in most uh, most cases. Uh, and if you're talking about uh, a case involving a shooting, for example, uh, there is no uh, DNA to be found. What the DNA shows us, though, uh, is that there are significant problems in other aspects of the case because DNA, uh, uh, DNA can establish that a person did not commit the offense. Uh, but that means that all the evidence that the state used in, uh, in obtaining the conviction uh, was either uh, false or misleading. So the eyewitness testimony was wrong. Uh, the testimony from informants was wrong. Uh, if there's a confession, as there have been uh, in 20 percent of the, uh, the cases uh, in, involving uh, death row exonerations, uh, that confession was either false or fabricated. Uh, or uh, uh, you have eyewitnesses. Uh, we see in case after case with, uh, with DNA exonerations uh, that there are eyewitnesses who have testified truthfully but inaccurately. So the public has seen that the DNA has unequivocally established that innocent people have been sentenced to death, but it's also undermined confidence in the rest of the evidence. Uh, and one of the disturbing patterns that we've seen uh, in the exonerations uh, is that there has been a significant amount of prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, of the exonerations uh, from 2012 uh, to the present, and we're talking about 14 exonerations uh, in that period, uh, 12 of those have been cases uh, that have had significant evidence of police or prosecutorial misconduct. 
And, you know, we may be able to make evidentiary rules better uh, and correct uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the errors with with questionable uh, pseudoscientific evidence. Uh, we may be able uh, to get better eyewitness identification procedures. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, that uh, better evidence uh, and good procedures is never going to overcome bad faith. Uh, and as long as you have uh, prosecutions that uh, that are proceeding uh, in bad faith with prosecutors hiding evidence or police uh, uh, manipulating evidence, uh, then you can never guarantee that people are not going to be wrongfully convicted and wrongfully sentenced to death. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Attorney Robert Dunham, Executive Director of the Death Penalty Information Center, and Judge Alex Kaczynski from the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Before we broke for the commercial, we were talking about DNA evidence and forensic evidence and prosecutorial misconduct. Judge Kaczynski, what developments have you seen in that area in terms of the effect of those issues on death penalty cases? Oh, well, there certainly have been um, developments in all of those areas. Uh, there are certainly plenty of cases out there involving uh, discredited uh, forensic evidence. There are plenty of cases involving um, uh, problems with eyewitnesses or there are plenty of cases involving prosecutorial misconduct, but there's nothing unique about uh, death cases. Um, those cases um, run across uh, the entire the, the broad spectrum of our criminal and civil justice system, and I think those are issues we need to address. Um, to some extent, they, they actually uh, affect death cases uh, less uh, because... Um, uh, very often, uh, there are many more resources that are available uh, if somebody's charged with capital crime. They get more lawyers, they get more investigators, and so on. So some of those problems can be overcome. The people I worry about are the people who get uh, multiple life sentences or life without parole. Uh, nobody cares about them. They, they, they linger, uh, and they, they, they may, in fact, be innocent, and they are caged for the rest of their life like animals, and, um, you know, based on junk science. Uh, remember the case uh, a couple of years ago of the grandmother who was uh, uh, a case of our court that, um, where um, she was convicted of uh, killing her grandchild uh, based on 
for evidence of shaken baby syndrome, uh, evidence that has now been discredited. Uh, she didn't get the death penalty. She was in prison, and um, we uh, vacated her conviction because the, the, we saw the science had been uh, repudiated, and the Supreme Court 5-4 uh, reversed us summarily and reimposed a sentence. Uh, eventually, she got free uh, because Governor Brown um, uh, granted her clemency, uh, but um, I think that happened because it was such a high visibility case. There are scores, perhaps hundreds, and maybe thousands of people in prison today uh, who are there uh, wrongfully because of bad evidence. And I think the focus on death cases, on capital cases, as uh, somehow unique, is, is misguided. I think the problem is far broader. I think the problem is uh, is very broad, and uh, and the system as a whole does have difficulty dealing with innocence issues, whether they're capital cases or not capital cases. But the evidence suggests, uh, I think, contrary uh, to what Judge Kaczynski is saying, uh, that uh, innocence is actually more of a problem uh, in capital cases. Now, you may get closer review uh, of, of the case during the appellate process, uh, but there are all sorts of incentives uh, for prosecutors in capital cases uh, to shade the rules, uh, and I, you know, not necessarily that they want to do that, uh, but in high-profile cases, in cases where there's public pressure to solve them, uh, there is a tendency among investigators and on prosecutors to focus on an individual suspect uh, and then have tunnel vision. Uh, and that tunnel vision has led in numerous cases uh, to uh, excluding investigation of alternate suspects who turn out to be the people who are guilty. Uh, or it's led when there's holes in the evidence to trying to plug those holes using informants. Uh, one of the interesting pieces of data that I've seen is that uh, according to the Innocence Project, uh, among the exonerations as a whole in the United States, uh, you see the use of informants who've given uh, false testimony uh, in about 15% of those cases. And the estimate is uh, that it's almost three times that amount in capital cases. And that's because capital cases uh, are cases that the prosecutors have a greater incentive uh, to close and to, uh, and, and to get a suspect uh, convicted. Uh, and they are cases that are more valuable to uh, to informants uh, because they can get a better deal because of the high-profile nature of the cases. So I would disagree with Judge Kaczynski that uh, that there is less of a problem uh, with innocence uh, in capital cases. But I do agree with uh, w with the judge that it's a significant problem across the board. How many non-death penalty cases does the DPIC handle? Well, uh, we don't handle cases. Do you have any idea within uh, groups like Innocence Project and other uh, death penalty advocates whether they're taking uh, non-death penalty cases or whether they're restricting those practices to just death penalty cases? Oh, oh they clearly they clearly handle both. And the Innocence Projects, there's a, a network of Innocence Projects now across the country. Uh, uh, some of them uh, are limited to cases that involve DNA. Others uh, go beyond DNA. Uh, typically, the Innocence Projects... Um, handle uh, non-capital as well as capital cases. Uh, and we're looking at hundreds of exonerations. Uh, the, um, the National Registry of Exonerations uh, is now keeping track, uh, and I believe that they are in the thousands at this point uh, for Americans whom, uh, who have been exonerated. Judge Kaczynski, do you see the Supreme Court picking up death penalty cases in the immediate future? Well, it depends on the issue, doesn't it? 
Well, constitutionality, for example. Or will they reconsider the constitutionality of the death penalty as such? Yes. No, I don't think. Not any. Not in the foreseeable future. I mean, they they take up various issues. They they've taken up questions of whether uh, juveniles can be executed or whether mentally retarded can be executed. They've got issues involving particular kind of drug cocktails and how executions are carried out. But those are also the periphery, the, the, the basic question of whether or not the death penalty is constitutional. I don't see that uh, in the, uh, being taken out by the Supreme Court in the next 20 years. Robert, what do you think would have to go and fall into place for that to happen? Well, I think it's likely that the court will consider uh, the constitutionality of the death penalty uh, and uh, – and they're likely to do so. Uh, I, I think it won't take nearly, uh, nearly a generation for that to happen. Uh, we've had a call from um, from Justice Breyer uh, in his dissent in Glossop versus Gross, the lethal injection case, uh, in which uh, his dissenting opinion asks essentially lawyers who are handling capital cases to come forward with, uh, with, with constitutional challenges. And he set forth a blueprint uh, for uh, how one would build a claim uh, that the death penalty across the country is administered in a manner that is unconstitutionally uh, cruel and unusual. Uh, there was a motion that was filed just yesterday uh, in a federal capital trial uh, in Vermont, the case of United States versus Fell, uh, in which the defendant um, claimed that the federal death penalty was unconstitutional uh, and followed the blueprint that Justice Breyer uh, set forth uh, in uh, in, in bringing that motion. Uh, there was a, uh, a petition for writ of certiorari uh, that was just filed in the Supreme Court uh, yesterday uh, coming out of Pennsylvania in which uh, a, a defendant uh, using the blueprint that Justice uh, Breyer wrote uh, asked the Supreme Court to, to grant certiorari. And uh, we know that there are lawyers across the country in many different states uh, that are seeking evidentiary hearings to develop the factual record that would be appropriate for the court to review. Now, the fact that lawyers are doing this doesn't mean that, that the court is necessarily going to hear it. Uh, and the fact that Justice Breyer uh, and Justice Ginsburg uh, invited the review doesn't mean the court is just going to take any case because someone has used the magical words that the death penalty is unconstitutional. Uh, but I think that we are pretty close uh, to, uh, to the Supreme Court uh, reaching out to accept review of a case. Uh, but I think the court is going to be looking for the right case. When that will happen, we don't know. What case it's going to be, we don't know, but I think it's pretty pretty certain uh, that it's going to happen uh, in the near term as opposed to the long term. We we also don't know what would happen if they did take it. Uh, with the current makeup of the court, I can certainly see them cutting back uh, significantly on the um, post-firm and um, uh, incrustations on the death penalty, all those procedural uh, all those procedural uh, hurdles. Uh, I can see them um, taking another look and saying, okay, we're going to look at it, we're going to decide whether or not we were right in uh, in Furman or whether we were right in uh, in uh, Greg versus Georgia. And um, if they do take it, I think there's a risk that they will actually uh, decide to um, cut the Gordian knot and uh, actually uh, streamline the process of executions. I, I think that's, that's one of the... Uh that's one of the reasons that no one is quite sure what's going to happen right now. Uh, the 
the, the common wisdom, which isn't always right, uh, is that uh, right now uh, the vote's going to be five to four and uh, whether the death penalty is constitutional or not depends on what Justice Kennedy thinks. Uh, and uh, commentators, I think, on both sides uh, have said that Justice Kennedy, uh, there, there's a Justice Kennedy who would vote to uh, uphold the constitutionality of the death penalty, and there's a Justice Kennedy uh, who would vote uh, to overturn it. I don't think anybody can say right now, um, maybe not even Justice Kennedy himself, uh, how he would come out uh, because we don't know what the case is and how it's going to have been argued. Uh, but this also underscores the importance of the composition of the court. Uh, and that's something uh, that could very well determine the future constitutionality uh, of the death penalty, who is on the court. Uh, and uh, that's obviously something that's dependent upon when one of the justices uh, or more of the justices uh, retires and who it is uh, who who is going to be doing the appointing. Yeah, I think, I think the next presidential election is going to have a lot to say about it. If it's a democratic president, then I think uh, there's some chance that um, uh, they'll reconsider. If it's a Republican president, I think uh, it's pretty much going to be, as I said, up 20 years. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program where it's time to wrap up and get our guests' final thoughts and their contact information if they'd like to share it with our listeners. Robert, we'll start with you. You mentioned at the outset the Death Penalty Information Center is a, uh, a national nonprofit uh, that provides information and analysis on death penalty issues. Uh, if people want to uh, to look up more information uh, on the death penalty, uh, they're welcome to visit our website at www.deathpenaltyinfo.org. Uh, we uh, we tweet. Uh, we are on Facebook. We have a daily what's new where we talk about uh, different things that are going on in the death penalty. Uh, I think one. Of the, one of the key things that we've seen uh, over the course of, uh, of the last 20 years uh, is that among all measures, uh, support for the death penalty is dropping. Uh, there have been six states that have abolished the death penalty in the last 10 years. Nebraska is in limbo. The legislature uh, abolished. There's going to be a, a, a referendum uh, to determine what happens next. Uh, four states have moratoriums, uh, and another three states came within a single vote of abolition. So there seems to be uh, a, a national trend in public opinion polls, in the number of death sentences imposed, in the number of executions, uh, and in the number of states that are authorizing the death penalty. There seems to be uh, a consistent trend away from it. Uh, no one knows uh, ultimately what's going to happen, uh, but the trend suggests the death penalty may be a, uh, a punishment uh, whose time has passed. And Judge Kaczynski, your final thoughts? Well, the, there are punishments worse than death. And uh, there are punishments worse than death in this country. And I think we have to be very careful when we take on the death penalty and argue, oh, uh, don't worry, uh, if you uh, give somebody a life sentence uh, without possibility of parole, uh, we can keep them safe, there will be no way they'll hurt anybody else. The only way they can, that can happen is by putting them in supermax prisons, uh, essentially in solitary confinement. There are now 25,000 prisoners in solitary in, in supermax prisons. And those are face worse than death. Uh, human being goes crazy very quickly, uh, having no contact with other human beings. They're driven to uh, insanity. And we ought to be very careful uh, as to, um, to argue against death penalty with such an error focus and overlook the fact that we may, in fact, be uh, taking those folks uh, away from death row and uh, putting them in a situation that where they will wish for the executioner. 
Uh, I have a piece about this coming out in the Yale Law Journal. It'll be published um, in January and will be shown online. It'll be at yalelawjournal.org. It's not yet up, but uh, shortly after the first of the year, there will be uh, uh, a piece on that. It's called, it will be called Worse Than Death, uh, and it comments on a report uh, uh, prepared by the Lyman Center uh, at Yale uh, dealing with the problem of uh, administrative segregation and solitary confinement and the, the huge, huge, huge problem, much bigger problem than the few people on death row, is the other uh, many thousands of people uh, who uh, languish in our prisons in uh, inhuman conditions, uh, um, separated from other human beings. And you also, I believe, Judge Kaczynski wrote an introduction to the, in the Criminal Procedure Project recently. Oh, yes, that's Criminal Law 2.0. You can get it online. Just put in Kaczynski, Criminal Law 2.0, Georgetown Law Journal. Uh, it goes through all of the questions, uh, or many of the questions raised about uh, the weaknesses of the criminal justice system, not not limited to death penalty, but uh, uh, criminal justice system in in general. Great. And if our listeners would like to reach out to you? Uh, they can email me, alex at kozinski.com, A-L-E-X at K-O-Z-I-N-S-K-I dot com. Great. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.